And let me just remind you to continue to pray for our teenagers that are actually teenagers and some of our young adults that are out at Word of Life serving for the summer. This is the last week. And uh, those of us that have involved in camp over the summer, uh, you go through the first week you're all charged up. Second week you're usually doing pretty well. Third week you're still doing pretty good, but by about the fourth week it starts to get tiring and monotonous to some extent. And just pray that they finish strong. Um, you know the list, they were across the, the, the list that was up here on our announcements. We also have uh, six, seven, six of our kids go, seven of our kids gone this week, this last week for camp. And Paige and Talia and Anna and Emily and Darlyra and Donnie are all gone. And who? And Sabrina, I missed those, those two. So you pray for them this week at camp too, as they go. We're privileged to be able to send them out there. All right, you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. We're going to go back a little bit through what we've been talking about. Remember, we've been talking about um, called to be holy. And we've been talking about holiness in general for the last this will be the fourth week we've been talking about the fact that we are practically called to holiness, meaning simply that our lives are supposed to reflect the character of the one who we serve. Everybody agree with that? Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13. Wait, they got dirty. Some days you need them, some days you don't. But I need them today for some reason. So, all right. Says this. Therefore, gird up your minds for action. Again, what we talked about several weeks ago, tying up the loose ends. Keep sober in the spirit. The, simply the fact that we're not intoxicated with the world, but focused on Jesus. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Having done all that, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which, which were yours in your arrogance or ignorance. But like the one, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially <clears throat> judges according to each one's work, each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brother, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord abides forever. 
And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let's just take a moment and ask God to bless what we're going to do here in the next several moments. Father, we are grateful for your word. For in it, we find how to get to you through your son, Jesus Christ. In it, we find how who you are and how we are to live in respect to how we've been saved. And in it, we find what we're supposed to do while we're here. In it, we find what the future holds and the great promises that we have of heaven in the next life. And Father, I just ask that you would speak through your word in your spirit this morning as we review and look at what we've talked about these last several weeks and father i pray in us you would uh, charge us to be holy because you are holy and we ask these things in jesus name amen and just to review just so you know that we're talking about holiness holiness is actually let me do this way. let's see if you've been paying attention i'll probably regret this but somebody tell me the definition of holy or being whole or holy. Somebody just shout it out. Separate. Separate. Set apart. Far above. Alright? And then and when we look at God, He is far above who we are, correct? And Isaiah, the passage that we looked at several weeks ago, uh, Isaiah was open to the throne room of heaven and he saw the magnificence and the grandeur and the majesty and the greatness of God. He was just thrown to do what? Whoa. I'm undone. When he was confronted with the, the holiness of God. And again, holiness is not one single attribute of God. Holiness applies to every attribute of God. Okay? He is set apart in all of those things. And because he is holy, what we read here in, in Peter, we are to be holy. We're to be set apart. We're to be set apart. The word ecclesia, which means the church, means what? Come on, called out, set apart. We as a church, as individuals and as a church, have been called out, set apart to be holy, set apart to be different, set apart for a specific reason while we're here on this earth. And we've got to keep that in mind. But getting back to where we stopped last week, last week we stopped in those verses there where it says, therefore putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes, Long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow and respect the salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And in those verses, we saw three simple facts. Peter draws their attention, and you can see it in the commas in the verse where the phrases are separated. Number one, he gives us the wayward to hunger. It's like what? Like a newborn babe. And like a newborn babe, the next thought is we are to long for the pure milk of the word. And the reason is, why? That we may grow in respect to salvation. Now, this isn't talking about being saved by how we live, is it? No, it's talking about sanctification. It's talking about that process that happens after salvation. When we get saved, we are 100% sanctified. We are 100% righteous. Everybody agree with that? All right, we read that in the Bible. We're redeemed. We're justified. <clears throat> All 
those big words, doctrinal words that, that we all know. But we, our new reborn spirit lives inside of a body that is still under the curse, all right? And we are constantly, daily, should be being sanctified, growing in our faith, growing, like it says, in respect to salvation. We are to be more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. Yes. If we mess up, we start not back over, but we take care of what we messed up, and we continue that process of growth. And that's important. The newborn babe's picture there is a picture of, it's not, not just a general uh, sense, it, it is that is supposed to be our hunger pattern all the time. Like newborn babes. We're to hunger for the word. Long for is, is the word there. It's, a, it's an imperative verb and it is a command. So when Peter says here that we are to long for the word, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. It's a command. Uh, God puts, and we talked about this last week, God puts that new desire in our heart, a desire that was not uh, there before when we were in our carnality, if you want to use that word, when we were in our sin, when we were not saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he puts new thoughts. He puts new desires. He puts new... Uh, it's just new. Things that you wouldn't have longed for before you were saved... You now long for or have a desire to be part of. But here's where your choice comes in again, just to remind you every week. We have the choice to, to long to match that desire, or we have the choice to not. You have a choice to open the Word of God, or you have a choice not to. God doesn't force feed you. He gives you that choice. And we have to understand, as we talked about last week, that things, things affect our appetite. Just like being sick humanly. If you get a virus, you don't eat like you normally do, do you? Well, things affect our, our appetite spiritually. And that's why he says, and he starts out in that verse before, where he says, Therefore, uh, laying aside all malice. And, and all deceit and hypocrisy. In other words, we take care of those things that, that cause us not to be hungry. So that that desire is matched with our will. If there is no hunger for the living and enduring word of God, just in review, we, we ended with this. There, there's one of, of three things, and I added one as I was studying this week, uh, to the problem. Either we've not tasted of the kindness of the Lord, as he said there, and that imperishable seed has not been planted in our hearts, and we've not responded in obedience to the truth. In other words, maybe we're not saved. That could be one possibility why there's no hunger. The second one is, in that picture of putting off, remember the words mean this. They literally mean taking off a soiled garment. And things that affect our hunger, the picture is that, that sin needs to be taken off like you would a dirty garment. Because it affects your hunger. And again, I don't know if I said this last week, but if you were to go outside and roll around in mud, and decide not to take a bath for a month, would it affect who you are? Number one, it would affect who you are when you're around us. But would it affect how you feel? Would it cause you to be depressed? Would it cause you to not have the right desires and not eat the right way and maybe do stupid things? Yeah. Well, the same picture there is with sin. When we put off or lay aside, as the words in the New American Standard, 
It is taking off that sin that causes that hunger to not be correct. And that's the picture uh, that, that, we haven't, that maybe we haven't taken off our soiled garments. Maybe we ended with this, that you've put your soiled garments back on. Again, Romans 6 talks about the fact that, that, that when we get saved, we are buried in the likeness of death, of his death, right? Raised to walk in newness of life. The old man is in the grave, at least he's supposed to be, isn't he? But how often do we, when we decide we want to live like the world, we go out with our shovel and we dig that old man up and we slap that dead body back on us? We can do that. And that affects our hunger. And the fourth one, again, that I added, but we sort of talked about a little bit here, was that we didn't spend a whole lot of time. It's a choice that we have when it comes to this hunger or desire for the word. And sometimes it's sin, sometimes it's laziness, sometimes it's apathy, sometimes it's just simple neglect that we choose not to obey that command to long for the word. Anybody else been there? I've been there. Sometimes more than I'll ever admit to you. But I've been there. But it's a command. We are commanded to long for that word. That means that we are responsible for our appetite. If you go in the verses before, um, um, where it says that we will, let me see if I can find it. Again, I'm preaching out of a Bible that's not the one I usually preach out of. But it says that we're going to stand and, and give an account for our actions. You and God. And you'll answer for your appetite. And we have to understand that just as God gave us a choice in salvation, he also gives us a choice in sanctification. For our growing into the image of Jesus Christ. You had a choice to choose Jesus to be saved. You have a choice to be like Jesus and be sanctified. Now listen, I'm going to be very, the two go together. All right, there has to be some kind of God owns your life at some point in your life or the first didn't happen. You understand what I'm saying? Eventually you will act like a Christian or at least try to act like a Christian. Be very clear about that. Go back to chapter 2, and we're going to move on to where we are today. Verse 4. All of those things keep in mind, because they all uh, play a part in what we're going to talk about. In verse 4 it says, And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. <clears throat> Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Aren't you glad for that statement? <clears throat> this precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed but you you he's talking to you he's talking to me if you know jesus as your savior this is you you are a read it with me it is you are a oh listen everybody's paying attention your Bibles out. Look at it. You are a 
Chosen race. A. 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 And here's the reason that you may proclaim the excellency of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does that statement right there say is number one, one of the responsibilities we have as Christians. We are responsible to do what? Proclaim the gospel. Don't anybody tell you that you're not responsible to evangelize. You might not be called to be an evangelist, but you are called to evangelize. Alright? I lost my spot. <clears throat> that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once were not a people, but now are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts that which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in, the, in this thing or in the thing in which they slander you as an evildoer, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, your life is to be so set apart from the world that when the world looks at you and casts an accusation against you, your character and your behavior says you're lying. That's the picture. That's the picture. And today what we're going to do is we're just going to simply concentrate on verse 4. All right? This was only supposed to be a three or four weeks message, but I decided since we're in it, we're going to just walk through it, at least through this chapter. Uh, because this is very specific about what we are called to be in the world that we're in. We talked this morning in Sunday school about sin. Sin had its effects in the beginning because we're separated from God at birth because of what Adam did in the garden. Passed on from generation to generation to generation. Every person is a sinner. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But once we're saved, we, 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 the penalty's gone. But we also can still be controlled. And if you want to put another P word to it. We can still be under the power of sin by choice. And God says that we are called out and, 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 and saved not only for heaven... But for here, again, I'm going to say this again, and I've said it many, many, many times. We have done evangelism a disservice to make salvation all about heaven. Hear me the rest of the statement, those of you that haven't heard me say it before. When you make it all about heaven and you introduce someone to Jesus and say, hey, do you want to go to heaven? There's not one person in the world that's in their right mind and wouldn't say what? Yes. yes. If you don't, who wants to go to hell? There's those few idiots that say, I'm going to go party with my friends. But they're morons, so that's just the way it is. They're lost. But when you make it all about heaven, that's future. And that's good. It is about heaven. But it's about now. Yeah. It's about now. Nice. Salvation is about getting God now. And when you evangelize somebody, yes, heaven should be in that picture. But it's about now. And here's the problem. A lot of people want God in the future for the, when they die. But a lot of people don't want God now. Why? Because i got to live differently. Everybody with me? The picture? Alright, so it, it, it's, it's about now. It's about now. We get the gospel and we get saved. And, and in that verse in John 10.10, 10, it says the thief has come to steal and destroy. 
But I have come that you might have life, that's, no, life, that's future, that's life, eternal life, and that you might have life abundantly. That's now. That's now. And we're here for a reason. So verse 4 and 5, and we're just going to stick on the first statement out of verse 4, but let me read verses 4 and 5. Again, thinking about practical holiness. And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about it in the future, and I'll probably mention it here in the next couple minutes. But in that verse, there's an individual calling, and then there's the, the body calling. Listen, anybody ever tells you that they don't need church to grow doesn't know what the Bible says. We're in this together. Now, we could live on our own. God's sufficient enough. He's given us his word. And we can go out in the woods and, and we'll get to heaven. But you're not going to experience the blessings of what he's got for you to do in this life unless you're in the body. Again, to remind you, because this church focuses on, on, on growing together spiritually and then serving together. All right? And in that growing, again, Ephesians chapter 4, the purpose of the church... And the purpose of the pastor isn't to do the work of the church. The purpose of the pastor is to do what? To equip the church for work. We've got some, some, some big days coming up. Make sure I got the right, yeah, I got the right time. This clock's wrong. I thought it was almost 12 o'clock already. Now listen, I'm going to make sure, because you're going to be here to one. Now listen. Listen, God brings people in for a season and he takes people out for a season. All right? And in this church, now we know we've had some that have moved to other places. We have some that are leaving and moving, and that's normal. But in order for the ministry of this church to continue, those roles need to be fulfilled. Last week we had our congregational meeting. And I've talked about this, you, some of you that didn't stay for the meeting. Uh, let me just remind you that there are a lot of roles. As a matter of fact, we don't even operate by our, by our Constitution because we don't have enough deacons. Where we are as a church, we should have six deacons with me as the seventh. We have two. Here's why. Number one, there's men in the room who are qualified but haven't stepped up. Number two, there are men in this room who could be qualified, but they need to go through that process of training and growing who haven't stepped up. I hope that steps on your toes. So the next time you all come to me and say, Pastor Steve, take some time off. Slow down. You're working too hard. Remember, if those rules aren't filled, I can't slow down. His brother's a pastor. He understands. James understands. So that means this, you've got to step up because the purpose of the body is to fulfill the role of the church in this community, okay? All right, so let's get back to what we're talking about. That was sort of no charge for that one. <laughs> let's take that first statement. It says, then coming to him. 
Peter is writing these next statements based on the verse, verses before that we've already discussed. All right, so when he moves into this this section, he, he's, he's, it's a foredrawn conclusion that all of the other things that we've just talked about are present. And they are simply this. In verse 13 of chapter 1, uh, when he says coming to him, he's saying that you've already come having girded your minds for action. That you've already uh, come, and, or that you're coming and you've kept your sober in the spirit. That, that coming to him, you've fixed your hope completely on the grace that was to be brought to you. And coming to him, you're coming as an obedient child, having not conformed to the way you used to be. And coming to him, in verse 15, you're striving to be holy as he is holy, holy in all of your behavior. And coming to him, in verse 17, you understand that God will judge each man's works, not for heaven and hell, but for reward or not reward. And you are conducting yourselves with that moment in mind. In other words, we live with the, the knowledge and the truth that one day we will stand before God and we will give an account for every moment from the moment we were saved until we're taken to heaven. And we will stand before God, before Jesus specifically, and you will be face to face with him. Nobody else will be there to give an account for you. It will be you and there's nothing you can hide from him. And that you've been a good steward with his glory and you've been a good steward with the gospel. That you're coming to him in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 1 where you know how costly your salvation was and, and that it was planned before the foundation of the world and that should blow your mind away. No matter where you stand on free will or not. It says it right there. Jesus was the plan. There is no plan other. Verse 22, that you in obedience to the truth, the gospel, have purified your souls. Coming to him in verse 20, in verse 23, that you have been born again with imperishable seed through the living word of God. Coming to him with the knowledge that the word of the Lord is forever. Coming to him having taken off your dirty sinful garments. In verse 2, coming to him in chapter 2, we have the same desire for the word that a newborn baby has to eat so that we may grow. And when he says that, it's based on a clean, growing, steady, regular, habitual relationship with the Lord. That's the presumption that Peter gives. When you get to this point, you're there already. You've already got If you keep all those other things in line, you've got that pattern in your life. Want to get the picture? The words that Peter uses here for coming to are not a reference to an initial act at the, at the moment of salvation. He's already said that that talked about that happening before. These words speak of a close, intimate, regular, habitual approaching of the believer in the presence of the Lord and seeking uh, of communion with him. You think that you look back, uh, an Old Testament character that comes to mind is Daniel. Alright, Daniel, we all know, who, everybody know who Daniel is? If you don't, you've got to go back in the Old Testament and read the book of Daniel. But you know Dan, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Alright, Daniel 
was a, was a was a pretty high up in the government that he was there. In. He was one of the young men who was taken out of Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. And he, the whole process in that is that that they, and, and you read it in the first couple chapters of Daniel, they literally took the wise and the bright young men out of the out of the Jewish nation, the Israelites, and they brought them into theirs because these guys are smart guys. And the whole process was that they were going to take and teach them their religion and teach them their ways. And they even gave them names that had pagan meanings. They literally were trying to program out any knowledge of the Hebrew God. Now we know the fact that Daniel, when you when you get to the, the middle of the book where, where it starts to talk about the fact that, that, that he was to bow down to the king, everybody know that? Alright, what did Daniel not do? He didn't, do it. he didn't bow down. Alright? Matter of fact, he went back to his room and it says this as was his custom he opened his window and he prayed to God yeah. that's exactly what it's talking about yeah. in other words when all of that other stuff happens he had all of these things that we just talked about in line and it was his habit to already be close to God he didn't have to go running back trying to take care of everything and that's where Peter is in this passage it's a form drawn conclusion that this has already happened and again, Peter is tying this new section to the previous one. And in doing this, the, the new section becomes the basis for what we've just read. Meaning that all the things that we've studied the last couple of weeks flow out of this coming to him. It is a face-to-face -face and constant approach to Christ that Peter is emphasizing. And again, we go back to, that doesn't happen here. It does today. But what do you do with the rest of the week? <laughs> See, here's the thing. For you to grow, if you rely on this, by the time you get here next week, you're either going to be malnourished, sick, or beat up. And the picture here simply is this. The church's job is to equip you, to help you to grow, but it's to equip you for ministry. Your responsibility is to take this word every day and read it and grow as an individual into the image of Jesus so that you can be useful in here. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And again, that goes back to the... Those, those words that you can call it a personal devotion, you can call it a quiet time, you can call it anything you want. And I would challenge you, because there's some of you in this room I've challenged, and you still ain't doing it, so you still haven't gotten the picture, so here's another kick in the pants. Listen, you need to be in the Word every day. Amen. You're not going to miss lunch. Matter of fact, some of you will be watching your watch very shortly because there's a hunger that comes up and you want to go. You don't have any problem doing that. When's the last time it bothered you if you missed reading the Bible? Number one, if it's not a pattern already, it ain't going to bother you at all. Yeah. Pardon my English. So the picture here is this, and this is my challenge to you. There's a same thing we talked about in Sunday school. Listen, there's a lot of you that are new Christians. There's a lot of you that are, that are baby Christians. And the only way you're going to grow is if you're in this book. You've got to come to him on a regular basis, having done all of those things that were in the first chapter and in the first part of chapter 2. 
Well, you're not going to grow. You're going to struggle. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. You're going to be anemic, sick. And what's going to happen is you're either going to fall by the wayside or you're going to be disqualified, not from the race to get to heaven, but from the race to serve the Lord, and then you're going to miss out. And when you get to that day when you stand before God at the judgment seat, when it's just you and Jesus, you ain't going to get no crown to throw back at his feet and worship. And your whole life will be wasted. That's the moment when we get, when we, we, we say we, we serve him and we worship him now. We all lift up our hands and we sing fancy songs and we play loud music and we get all goofy about the music. You're not going to get up there and that has nothing to do with the crown that you're going to get. You can fake emotion on Sunday morning to sing a song, but you can't fake serving the Lord now and during the week. And when you stand before him and your whole life is laid out. And, and he's going to say to you, you know, what'd you do with the gospel? And remember, worship is giving back to him what, that's what the crowns are for. They're not for you. And you get up there and your whole life, you've got nothing. First Corinthians 3 says that you'll get in there again with the smell of what? Smoke on your back. That's going to be a disappointing moment. I'm saying there ain't going to be tears in heaven. Can you imagine standing before God? What'd you do with my gospel? What'd you do with my glory? And all you did was live your life for yourself. Yeah. You'll get into heaven, but you're going to sit there, and I'm sure they'll be weeping at that point. Because you got nothing to give. You got nothing to give. Remember, it's that face to face. Approach James 4.8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And we just finished James, and you all know, I don't want to re-preach James again, but again, that picture of the labor in the, in the tabernacle, where the priest went in and looked in and took care of the filth that they got from serving in the temple before they went into the presence of the Lord. Psalms 34, verse 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The idea that Peter is bringing to light is the idea of drawing near not just as an accident but intentionally. In other words, responding to that command to long for with your will and your actions, which is to do it. It's intentional. I'd ask you to raise your hands, but I'm afraid some of you would be, be embarrassed. But let me ask you a question. What is the scheduled time on your calendar for your day that you open the Word of God and spend time with Him? All right. If no, nobody answered, if you don't have one, it's not intentional. Everybody agree? Ephesians says that we're to be redeeming the time, buying back the time for the purposes that God has put us here, and that means that you need to have a scheduled time because if you don't schedule it, you won't do it. 
It's an intentional time with the idea not just of coming to him at that moment, but it's the idea of staying near. In other words, we're not coming and going. We're there. We're there. It's a difference, right? There's a difference. We're there. It's drawing near intentionally to enjoy that close and personal, intimate fellowship. Go back to that, that word, living stone. And we'll talk about it in a second. You're not, you're not bound down to a, 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 an idol. You're bound down to a living God. Who wants close and personal, intimate relationship with you. He wants it so much, he killed his son to pay for the sin. That's right. But he leaves it up to you. He leaves it up to you. Because he doesn't want to force himself on you. Jesus himself, by example, lived this thought out. Everything he did, and again, he was God, so to explain how this all fit in, it would be the human side of him. Because Jesus, except for the moment of sin, always was in fellowship with the Father. And some would even say during that moment he was still in fellowship with the Father to some extent. I don't know how they explain it, but it's been said. But out of everything he did, it flowed out of that close personal relationship. Everywhere you read in the New Testament, he took time away to do what? Spend time with his father. Spend time with his father. It flowed out of that close, intimate fellowship with the father. And if he is God, and it's not if he is God, but he is God. Yeah. And he did that because the human side of him needed that. How much more do we need it? Think about your week. Anybody struggle this past week? Raise your hand. Mine's up too. Alright. Alright, those of you that raised your hand, you need it. Those of you that didn't, you may need it. Alright? You need it. And we're not going to read it for the sake of time, but I would challenge you to write this reference down and read these verses later on. But John 15, 1 through 15 talks about abiding with Christ. That they are abiding with the We are to be abiding. That abiding is being that we're, that we're literally almost living in the presence. That's the picture. That's the picture. But read that passage sometime this week. And Peter's going on, going in the next couple of sentences to transition from the personal aspects of salvation to the community or the body aspects of salvation. We are to grow individually, and out of that we should be growing as a community together, the body life. And maybe part of the reason this church isn't growing as fast as you think it should is because some of you aren't growing personally. Yeah. And it's time to step up. Listen, the Bible says to watch the times because as they get worse, that means it's closer to Christ's return. Remember in James, they were living in anticipation of Jesus coming back. That means that you are, you are watching, you are waiting, and you're living for that moment to happen. The problem is, there's a lot of us, maybe even myself at times, that's focused on here without the future of Christ coming in, in the near future there. If we live in anticipation of Jesus coming back, that means this, that nothing in this world will have anchored ourselves, us to it, remember? And that's some of the verses that, that we just talked about. But he says, coming to him as to a living stone. 
Uh, there are several words for stone in the Bible, or stones in the Bible. One is the word petros. Uh, who would that be a reference to that, that we know in the New Testament? Peter, that's what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. He says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Petros means this. It means a loose, a little stone that's lying in a field is the picture there. And that's the word Jesus used in that passage that I just read. Another word for stone is, is the word petra, which is a sim, sim, simple general meaning for, the, for stone or a simple rock. The word that Peter uses here, it's always great when one of your youth calls you in the middle of your sermon on Facebook. That's great. <laughs> anyway, say so what's that mean? It's all Greek to me, right? Oh. Anyway, you know, you'll get that later. This is the, the word he uses here. This word is the word for a wrought, meaning a carved out, or a specifically designed stone. And it is a reference to who? Jesus Christ. It says to come to him as a living stone, one that is wrought and designed, not designed, but, but the picture is one that is made with that specific purpose. He's going to go on in a couple verses to describe Christ as the cornerstone, and if you learn building, and we've said this many times, the cornerstone is the most important part of the building. But if it doesn't, if it's not perfectly designed to fit, when you get to that fourth corner, you're going to be all over the place. So that's the picture there. We'll get to that in a little bit. But it's a reference to Christ. And if you go back to chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, it says this, Knowing that you are not redeemed of perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life that you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And then it says this, For he was foreknown before the foundations of the world. Exactly what Peter said. Coming to him as to a living stone, the one who was from ages past already determined to die for your salvation. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not begotten as in a father begots a child. This begotten is a different word. It is unique. It means unique and one of a kind. That's what Peter's saying here. And Peter's drawing specific attention to the quality and the qualifications of the one he is calling the believers to come to draw to. The one that they are to have a regular, close, habitual relationship with. Not only was this stone of specific quality, Peter refers to it as a living stone. He's drawing a contrast in that the stone that is the foundation of his faith, Jesus Christ, in contrast to the stones of the pagan religions, of the past and the present. Think of all the religions that the New Testament church has faced and most struggled with, allowing the, the practices to slip back into the, into the church. A lot of the epistles were written for that specific reason because the world got inside and those letters were written. Some were written with rebuke. First yeah. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So they were written because of that. The people had slipped. 
Think about the heresy that is built on the doctrine that Peter is the stone that the church is built on. Thousands and millions of people are going to hell because they've been taught that it's Peter. Peter is saying that there's only one stone, and that stone is not a dead stone like the idols and the gods of the pagan religions. This stone is alive and well, and as we know, when we when he after he died, he went where? Back to heaven, and where is he now? seated at the right hand of God and he's not just sit, seated there remember the picture in, 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 um, in Isaiah when, when God, the Lord was sitting on the throne what was that a picture of he's in control he doesn't need to get up it's all taken care of and Jesus is sitting on the throne and he is in control of everything the gods of this world are all dead Buddha's in the grave. Confucius is in the grave. Muhammad is in the grave. Yeah. Joseph Smith is in the grave. Charles Taz Russell, if you don't know who he is, he is uh, the, the guy that founded the JWs, which is there's plenty of them around here, and it's growing. He's dead. The popes, where are all the popes, we think? Some of them may have been saved, I don't know. But if they practice what they preached, they're dead. L. Ron Hubbard, where's he? He's dead. Here's one you may not have heard of. Jabulon. That's the God of the Freemasons. Something that is active in our community. All over. He's dead. He's dead. What about this one? Man. What is the God that we worship as the United States culture in this Western world? Man, humanism. Man's going to die. In Bible times, here's some names from the Bible times. Astoreth, the goddess of the Canaanites. Baal, the god of the Canaanites. He was also a god of the Canaanites. Chemosh, he was the god of the Moabites and the Amorites. Dagon, the god of the Philistines. All the gods of the Egyptians, remember when the Israelites came out of Israel and God, one by one, singly took down their whole belief system? The golden camp that the Israelites built when, when, they, when they were waiting on Moses and they got impatient. Marduk, the god of the Babylonians. Milcom, the god of the Amorites. Where are they? They weren't living stones. They were dead stones. Yeah. The New Testament, there were also many. And again, Paul writes into that culture in a lot of the epistles that does Peter and, and John and some of his. Those cultures were the Roman culture. We're close to being what the Romans were. Yeah. Anything goes. Mm -hmm. uh, the Greek culture, if you know anything about the Greek culture, and you go into, into the, the, the scripture in Acts, it says that, that Paul, who was talking to them, they believed in so many gods that they had one that wasn't on the throne just in case they missed one. In that time period, there was the Temple of Diana, which Corinthians and, and uh, Ephesians were written in, where, where at, at the part of their worship was, was pure filth, yeah. prostitution, and everything else that went on in, in, the, in the temple. Now, one of those gods is first alive, 
But not one of those guys was not only not alive, but none of them were reflected in a personal way to the people that supposedly worshipped them. These were gods you couldn't know. And in the next part of the verse, or in this, and then what we're talking about here is that this God, the one that, that is, the, is the living stone, he desires for that personal closeness, that intimate relationship. And again, I'll use this example again. There, there's not one of us, and it doesn't matter who's in the office of president, but in this world, probably the president of the United States is probably the highest position of power that there is in this world. Everybody agree with that? Yeah. All right. Can any of you go to say afternoon, get in your car, go up to whatever number street that is, Pennsylvania Avenue, is that what it's on? And walk through those 1600, and walk through those gates, and go up to the, the, the White House doors, open the doors, and go right into where Donald Trump lives, and you'll be accepted perfectly and no problem. No, you'll probably be shocked. But here, in this book, in this letter, and in this Bible, it says that this God, the living stone, he doesn't act that way. Everybody who comes through the name of Jesus Christ has instant access. And not just instant access, but a personal, close relationship is available. Amen. You're not talking about a human entity. You're talking about that God that was described in Isaiah chapter 6. That's seated on the throne, the, the, the one that, that is in control of all things, the one that the train of his robe fills that room, meaning that he is victorious over everything. And he wants to know you personally. Amen. It says in this verse that that living stone was rejected by men. Rejected is a verb that means to be rejected on proof or trial. We know that Jesus went through the trials that he went through and what did they do even though it was proven that he was innocent what did they do you all remember a few months ago or i think it was easter time when we talked about this Pilate gave them a choice he says i find no fault in this man here you can have jesus the christ or you can have jesus the christ who was jesus the son of god or you can have jesus barabbas who was jesus the son of father small Adam. And what did they choose? Barabbas. Barabbas. Rejected by men. The living God was standing right in front of them. He was rejected by man, but a choice and precious in the sight of God. Uh, the Father measured him by the standards of divine perfection and stated at his baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God chose and foreordained before the foundations of the world that Christ was the only way. Now go through those verses, but for the sake of time, I'm not. But if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, that's exactly what he says. John 3, 16. Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and your seed, her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, Satan will cause a little bit of pain, just a prick. But when Jesus comes, the seed of the woman who was Mary, when he comes, he will crush the head of the serpent. Fatal blow. Fatal blow. Isaiah 42.1 Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. 
Not only was he chosen and foreordained and uniquely qualified to be the living stone, but he is precious in the sight of God. And in Isaiah, the verse says this, in whom my soul, Isaiah says, delights. God delights in the Son. Isaiah delights in the Son. There's only one way. He's the one who was tried and tested. Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion, that's the passage that Peter quotes out of, a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed or disappointed. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.20 Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Closing, closing thoughts. Number one. Is your spiritual life built on the living stone? Or just a stone. Yeah. If you don't ever hear anything else that's said here this morning or any other morning, and you come in here and you are not saved, know this. Jesus Christ is God, was God, will always be God, and he came to this earth, and he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He died for your sins. Amen. Unlike the idols, that rust, fall away, can be destroyed. He is a living stone. He is he's there, alive and well. There's only one way to him. What is it that you're trusting to know God now and to get to heaven later? I'd ask you this question. Answer this question, not ask you this question. Answer this question in your head and don't say it out loud. If you died this very moment and God, you were ushered into eternity, and if this were to happen, it doesn't happen this way because you're instantly gone, one way or another. If you were ushered into the presence of God and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? If it's anything else other than my faith in Jesus Christ, you're trusting something other than that. Yes. I ask that question many times. People say, I'm trying to do a good job. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm really, I'm good to my neighbors. I'm working real hard. Who are they trusting? Themselves. If we could get there on our own merit, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. You understand that. It is faith alone in Christ alone that saves us. It's not Jesus plus how I live. It's Jesus and only Jesus that saves me. If you're here and that's you, you don't know whether you're saved, we're going to sing a song here in a couple minutes. Seconds, hopefully. All right? Come front and talk to us. Listen, we are here and we'll spend the afternoon if we have to to share the gospel with you and help you understand that there's only one way to heaven. And in Romans it says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved.